1: G'day Gladys, coming from Gadigal country, another late night live. Shortly, a Shapiroet on the United states of America. Why New Zealand might be feeling a bit uh, raucous about AUKUS. And then the story about a young Bengali architect who arrives in the United States to uh, send them skyscraping higher than ever. But first, welcome back to Bruce Shapiro, Contributing Editor with The Nation and Exec Director of the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. Bruce will be uh, talking quite a bit about the Supreme Court this evening, but let's start with uh, the matter of an abortion pill.
2: Well, these two issues are deeply related, of course, since the Supre- it was the Supreme Court that... Um, made it open season on abortion politics last year in the Dodds decision overturning Roe versus Wade. And now, while the Supreme Court claims it was turning uh, turning the issue over to the states to resolve, we now, in fact, have returned abortion to the center of American law, legal politics, and American politics. Um, federal debate. We've got two judges, one in Texas, who has issued a sweeping series of rulings that would ban the uh, abortion medication, um, all over the country. Uh, sim- this is a drug that has been used in uh, abortion services for two decades, was approved by the uh, Food and Drug Administration, and this Trump-appointed judge in Texas simply r- overruled the FDA, claimed that the FDA was disregarding the safety of patients uh, for which there is no evidence, it should be said. At the same time, you have another judge uh, out in uh, Washington state who has stay attempted to stay that uh, ban and has, in fact, uh, issued rulings protecting medication abortion protecting Mifeprestone, um, the Supreme Court sooner rather than later is now going to have to to weigh in on this. And, you know, what we've got in this situation is not just one rogue judge in Texas, but um, the right of the Republican Party um, in legislatures and in judiciary seats seeking to continue the abortion fight and to ratchet it up in a different way. Um, This is in turn provoking Democratic politicians and legislatures around the country to take their own action. In Massachusetts, in Maryland, the governors of both states have announced that they are going to stockpile methopristone in the event that the Supreme Court decides to uphold this ban. Um, you've got well, pharmaceutical companies not known as bastions of progressive politics weighing in an outrage, pointing out that. Um, If a judge can arbitrarily overrule the Food and Drug Administration's safety rulings, it's open season on every medication in the world, whether it's COVID vaccines or anything else. So um, this has, once again, abortion is not only an issue on its own, but has become a defining fault line in American politics going into, of course, an election year next year in which we can expect culture wars to play an ever larger role.
1: Bruce, I know you're not clairvoyant, but how is it likely to play out with the supremes?
2: Well, this is a this actually is a tough one. I mean, you the the on abortion politics, you would expect that this Supreme Court would uh, would simply side with the ban on efavapristone, or allow states to do it. I'm not so sure that's going to happen here. Uh, there are very interesting legal questions of whether the the Republican attorneys general of several states who who brought this to Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, um have standing. There is an important question about the the whether a federal judge can simply insert himself into a well-established regulatory scheme. So this one is up in the air. It may, in fact, split the court's conservative majority. There may be some who will fear the authority of the court itself corroded too far um, if this goes ahead. But, you know, this is such an extreme and idiosyncratic Supreme Court majority that um, it's, it's even harder to predict than usual.
1: And of course, it'll feed into the 2024 election.
2: Well, indeed. And it's, you know, the latest evidence that the Republican Party is now fully in the grips of a kind of narrowly cast culture war as the defining element of its politics, the attempt not only to continue to expand abortion bans, but the attack on, uh, on trans people and trans youth and education around trans issues, all kinds of other culture issues like that, which are um, very appealing to the Republican primary electorate, that Trump faction, but very dangerous to, in, in a general election. The, uh, in a general election, you're gonna have a, you know, a moderate Republicans, independent voters, who've over and over and over rejected extreme culture wars. And what we're beginning to see now is a fracture a deep fracture of the Republican coalition, which held sway from Reagan up to maybe the beginning of the Trump era, in which corporate interest, um, social conservatism, and national defense were the kind of uniting principles. Now you've got big pharma and other major corporate interests completely at odds with with the direction of the Republican Party, and that's going to have huge consequences.
1: Staying with the Supremes, let's talk about the least supreme of the Supremes in uh, Clarence Thomas with his notorious wife Ginny. Uh, Greed is good.
2: (laughs) Uh, You know, I believe Justice Thomas would actually say that. Uh, Look, Justice Thomas has had... Ethics problems throughout his career, um, but we are now on on new terrain. Um, you know, the the investigative organization ProPublica a couple weeks ago reported that Thomas and Ginny Thomas were. Had, Took hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of vacations um, from a friend of theirs, Harlan Crow, who's a Texas billionaire, one of the primary funders of far right-wing foundations and other organizations. They flew on his jet. They went to Indonesia with him. They stayed with him in the Adirondacks and Texas. And not once... Did Thomas report this as he is required to by law on his federal ethics forms? And then this week, a new ProPublica report took us even further into this strange zone of ethics on accountability, discovering that Mr. Crow, this billionaire, bought Thomas's mother's house from the justice and his family paid a whole lot of money for it has put a whole lot of improvements in it is maintaining Thomas's mother in Georgia rent free in this house and then plans to make a museum to justice Thomas out of it and again none of this is on the ethics forms um you know
1: Don't worry, Bruce. I'm going to report it to our federal ICAC. They'll sort it out. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Look, Thomas has always had this problem. I remember in 1991 when he was first running for, first being confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, some colleagues and I dug up the fact that one of his first rulings as an appeals court judge was on behalf of his closest political patron, then Republican Senator John Danforth, a guy who'd given Thomas his first job and had pushed his political career. And Thomas made a court ruling, an appeals court ruling, worth millions of dollars to Danforth and his family business. So the guy's had this kind of in his uh, political biography from the beginning, even before the notorious Anita Hill episode. What's different now is that it is colliding with a broader public loss of faith in the independence of the Supreme Court and a sense that the court now, not only because of Thomas, but because of the Dobbs decision and and a host of other rulings, has really abandoned the ethical grounding that a Supreme Court needs in order to have public attention, particularly because they don't have a code of ethics. They're the only part of government that doesn't have a code of ethics. No one holds them accountable and that's a problem.
1: And I recall Earl Warren chucking out a a fellow judge for a very minor financial misdemeanor.
2: Indeed, uh, Just, Justice Abe Fortas, uh, a close political ally of Lyndon Johnson, an important liberal justice, uh, resigned from the Supreme Court when it was discovered that he was playing footsie with <laughs> President Johnson and President Johnson's uh, allies a little bit too closely, and compared to what we now know about Justice Thomas, this was a minor ethical peccadillo. It was right that he resigned. It was good for the court. Um, and there are a lot of calls for Thomas to do just that. We don't expect this to happen. Of course, Justice Thomas is famously defensive and indeed lives for his own sense of victimization by his liberal opponents.
1: We've just got time to have a chat about. Uh diane uh, feinstein and i recommend being a bit elderly myself i regard the line people are taking on her as elder abuse
2: well senator diane feinstein the longest serving woman in in the history of the u.s senate um you know has been under attack from younger democrats for a while um she now has been absent from the senate for a couple of months supposedly with shingles and that has led a number of Democrats, including California Congressman Roquehanna, uh, to call on her to resign. She's still on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, they haven't been able to move judges forward, etc. There is a bigger problem with Feinstein. It's not just that she's old. There are other quite elderly people in the Senate in both parties, including Mitch McConnell, including Chuck Grassley. Uh, the fact is that for the last several years, there has been a lot of evidence that Feinstein has not been as fully engaged or not as alert um, as the California Senate seat might seem to require. And that's why you've got a couple of very powerful House Democrats, uh, Adam Schiff, uh, among others, uh, already announcing, uh, and Katie Porter, uh, both of them very prominent in the anti-Trump effort. They've already announced that they're gonna run primaries against Feinstein. So, you know, this is a case of of Democrats attacking their own, a little bit of democratic infighting, but it also is um, a, a kind of interesting question of when when do we know that a politician has stayed too long uh, that's the argument with Feinstein has she stayed too long
1: It's also a bit of an argument about Joe Biden but uh, we'll leave that <laughs> we'll leave that to next time. Thanks Bruce good to talk to you Bruce Shapiro contributing editor with the nation and exec director of the Dart Center for journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. Coming up, how the Kiwis feel about AUKUS. Well, beloved listeners, we heard today that uh, New Zealand's new PM, Chris Hipkins, will be visiting Australia this week ahead of Anzac Day. Now, on the agenda, you'd imagine, will be the AUKUS Alliance and Australia's $368 billion nuclear submarine deal with the US and UK. My old mate, uh, Comrade Keating called it the worst deal in all history. Others have described it as a necessary response to a deteriorating security environment. But uh, where do the Kiwis stand on this historic agreement? Nicholas Ku, KHOO, is an associate professor at the University of Otago and an expert in Chinese foreign policy. I want to uh, start by playing you a grab from the former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and what she said about August at the time.
0: Um, No, we weren't approached, but nor would I expect us to be. The centrepiece of this arrangement is the building of nuclear-powered submarines uh, to be based out of Australia. And Prime Minister Morrison and indeed all partners are very well versed and understand our position on nuclear-powered vessels and also nuclear weapons. Our legislation uh, means that nothing that is partially or fully powered by um, nuclear energy is able to enter into our internal waters. So that, that is in fact um, a position that has been held across parties for a long period of time. I am pleased to see that the eye has been turned to our region from partners that we work closely with. Um, because of course, this is a contested region. Uh, there is a role um, that other others can play, but the lens we'll always we'll look at this from will include stability.
1: Nicholas, were you surprised that New Zealand was well marginalised?
0: Well, I, I wouldn't
3: characterize New Zealand as being marginalised, and, and the reason is straightforward. Um, more recently, um, the New Zealand Defence Minister, Andrew Little, has indicated that uh, New Zealand is has been approached to enter into negotiations on what's known as Pillar 2 uh, of AUKUS. Now, this is an um, effort uh, to expand and expedite cooperation in critical technologies, including cyber, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies... Um, some uh, non-nuclear undersea, undersea capabilities, including also hypersonic and counter-hypersonic um, issues and a range of other initiatives. But to get to the kind of gist of it, it's uh, it's much more than nuclear. And, and New Zealand will not be involved in the nuclear aspect for obvious reasons because of our own legislations dating back to the 80s. And so in in many respects, uh, the jury's a little is out really on whether uh, New Zealand will or will not be uh, involved and I certainly wouldn't want to prejudge that
1: issue. Be patient with your ancient interrogator. I'd like you to spend a little bit more time on Pillar 2 so I fully understand it. What is Pillar 2 exactly?
3: Sure, so at least as far as the public information has been made clear, Pillar 2 deals with the non-nuclear aspect of the AUKUS agreement So focus on uh, cooperation in critical technologies, right? So what are critical technologies? So first point to note is it's technology, right? So it includes cyber, right? Uh, Cyber capabilities, artificial intelligence, also quantum technology uh, that involves computers, high level computers. Uh, And this obviously um, is really 21st century era technology that all these countries will be cooperating on.
1: So these non-nuclear technologies will right. be vital to future defence.
3: Uh, yes, and I would argue even to future economies. So there's an interactive aspect where you know we can't necessarily neatly draw a line between economic and military. And in fact, if we think back to it, in fact, when was the, when was the internet developed? It was developed during the Cold War, but it was only marketed at a commercial level after the Cold War. And also it came about through the U.S. Department of Defense. So again, this artificial line between what is military and what is uh, non-military has long been a myth. Uh, And so in, in many respects, what's going on now with AUKUS is a continuation of a phenomenon that's been going for a very, very long time.
1: I vividly recall the David Lonnie days and the history of uh, New Zealand's hostility to the idea of nuclear vessels entering its waters. That hasn't changed, though, has it?
3: No, it hasn't, which explains why um, New Zealand has actually taken a measured response to this. And so, therefore, they won't be involved in what's known as Pillar 1, which deals with the nuclear submarine side of things, but there's some interest and some discussion ongoing as we speak on New Zealand's participation in Pillar 2, and that would be that would be a non-nuclear aspect uh, of, of this arrangement. So, you know, we'll see how things evolve, uh, but certainly one should be open minded about this, uh, and the debate in New Zealand will carry on, and obviously we're in a election year this year, so we'll see whether this becomes a focus of discussion or not.
1: But it is an elemental fact that over time, New Zealand and Australia have taken very different paths when it comes to the USA alliance.
3: Oh, that is a a statement of fact, and that is true, and uh, you know, states make their own decisions based on their calculation of their national interests. So in that respect, there's nothing really particularly surprising there. Uh, and in fact, um, it's something to be encouraged.
1: You think New Zealand should be more forward-leaning in its approach to AUKUS?
3: Well, again, it's, it's hard to make a judgment either way, because as, as I've said, we're, we're looking at a situation where there are negotiations. Uh, Defence Minister Andrew Little was uh, um, quite positive in terms of New Zealand's potential engagement. Uh, But again, I I don't want to prejudge uh, the outcome on this. Now, what I would note is that uh, there's obviously some domestic political opposition to AUKUS, uh, expressed in opinion commentary uh, that's been reflected in uh, some of the debate in New Zealand. And so we'll see how this evolves. Uh, And then there are others who take a more, um, I'd say, uh, interested role in AUKUS and New Zealand's participation in it and uh, negotiation and discussion is carrying on as we speak.
1: I think it's probably time to factor in the uh, the five eyes.
3: Sure, yeah. Um, so that is uh, one aspect of this whole AUKUS uh, issue or discussion, because like it or not, if for whatever reason New Zealand uh, does not participate in AUKUS, uh, it would be highly idealistic to expect that somehow New Zealand's role in five eyes will will remain as it is. So I'm obviously speculating here, but it doesn't take too much of a leap uh, to expect or predict rather that if there is no... Um, AUKUS involvement, Um, this will have some effect and not necessarily salutary on New Zealand's role in Five
1: Eyes. We should also remind the listener that Five Eyes is the intelligence alliance comprising Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK and the US. That is correct. Okay. This is a, a great balancing act, isn't it? There's a lot. You've got to balance risks.
3: Exactly. So, just to be specific about the risks that are being balanced here, on one hand, New Zealand has a very deep economic relationship with China, right? Since we signed the free trade agreement with China in two thousand eight, China has by far become our top trading partner, just like Australia. I should mention. So there's this issue of China not agreeing with AUKUS, which, in in the minds of some people would be placed at risk if New Zealand was part of, or in some way associated with AUKUS, right? So that, that's one leg of it. So the other leg of it, the other risk, is that really, you know, on the other hand, if we don't get involved in AUKUS, that that could be what I discussed before, the gradual corrosion or erosion or weakening of New Zealand's relationship with this Five Eyes partners. So it's about balancing the risks. And in many respects, um, this is pointing to to a reality in the 21st century, which is that compared to say 20, 30 years ago, and certainly over the course of time in the post Cold War era, the international environment has become more and more harsh. Uh, and it's, uh, it's turned out to be uh, very unlike many of the predictions of a kind of development of a security community in the world where things get better, there's less proliferation of nuclear weapons. Uh, there's less um, interstate conflict. So, for example, we just look at Russia and new Ukraine. People thought this type of land war in the, in Europe was now ruled out due to the progress that we've made on so many other fronts. But alas, we found out, unfortunately, that uh, things have not been as predicted.
1: My guest is uh, Nicholas Ku. Associate Professor at the University of Otago and an expert in Chinese foreign policy. Now, these divisions in New Zealand politics over AUKUS are are quite significant, aren't they?
3: Well, what I would say is that the proponents uh, or advocates of a non-involvement by New Zealand in AUKUS have certainly made their position very clear, right? So they've come out and they've included... uh, former prime ministers, uh, Helen Clark, um, Jim Bolger, for example, who have taken a very clear stance against AUKUS. And um, what we have in terms of uh, supporting AUKUS, we've had uh, Winston Peters, a former uh, foreign minister. We've also had, obviously, the New Zealand defence minister, Andrew Little. So, you know, in terms of kind of the rhetoric around this, um, we're seeing a balance in the sense of some coming up very strongly against it, some in favour of it. And we, had, we have had academics on both sides of the spectrum coming out on this issue. So it's um, not clear how this will evolve and how it will uh, lead to a decision in the end. But uh, you can be sure that we will be discussing this uh, on our side of the Tasman.
1: And of course, all of this is taking place in an election year.
3: Exactly. Now, there's a big question as to how deep the discussion will be, or whether there will even be a discussion. Uh, You know, sometimes uh, these um, detailed and complex matters may not be best discussed in terms of an election setting. So we'll have to see. But certainly, one would think that the fact that uh, our closest ally, which is Australia, uh, is entering into a major change in its fundamental foreign policy uh, basis, that should be something that uh, is certainly uh, taken into consideration when we discuss foreign policy, and so if it, is, if it does come out in the election, then uh, one would hope that the, all sides in this debate are reflected fairly.
1: Now China has unsurprisingly uh, condemned the agreement, describing it as a path of error and danger. Do you think, do you think AUKUS has a, is a reasonable response from Australia and its partners?
3: Absolutely. AUKUS is a reasonable response, uh, and in fact, the reason AUKUS exists is principally because of Chinese foreign policy over the last 10 years. If you take a kind of snapshot of what's gone on in the last 10 years, in 2012, um, China had a fairly good relationship with the region, but if you fast forward to 2023 and you look at the region, China's relations with uh, all the major states from Japan uh, in the West, or rather, depending on your perspective, East, all the way through to India has basically deteriorated. So that tells us something uh, about Chinese foreign policy. And my assessment is if you look closely at the facts, uh, Chinese foreign policy has taken a much more assertive uh, turn. And this hasn't been in China's national interest. Uh, The fact that. Uh, regional states have taken a rather dim view and have a much more conflictual relationship with China, I don't think necessarily even serves China's interests.
1: I think we'll listen to a grab of Penny Wong. Penny is, of course, our foreign minister. And this is what she had to say at the National Press Club in Canberra yesterday.
0: A war over Taiwan would be catastrophic for all. We know that there would be no real winners, And we know maintaining the status quo is comprehensively superior to any alternative. It will be challenging, requiring both reassurance and deterrence. But this is the proposition most capable of averting conflict and enabling the region to live in peace and prosperity. So I'll say it now at the National Press Club to avoid any possible misunderstanding our job is to lower the heat on any potential conflict while increasing pressure on others to do the same. the Albanese government does that here at home and we do that in our diplomacy. It may not sell as many newspapers today, but it will help you to sell them for a lot longer.
1: (laughs) Would you agree with what Penny says,
3: yes i would i think that is an appropriately sober assessment of the regional security situation and i say this uh with some regret because a lot of this is a result of uh, choices made by china Uh, and uh, it is unrealistic to expect regional states not to have responded uh, the way they have Uh, australia is responding because of a sanctions policy that has been initiated by the Chinese government since 2020, uh, and also a range of other issues, but principally because of this reason. So I think um, before the Chinese government starts pointing the finger at other states, uh, it really needs to take a hard look at its own foreign policy.
1: Thank you, Nicholas Ku. Nicholas is Associate Professor at the University of Otago and an expert in Chinese foreign policy. And we've been uh, speaking about New Zealand's somewhat awkward response to AUKUS. Coming up, the Bengali migrant who became a father of the modern skyscraper. The Empire State Building was uh, opened back in 1931. It was far and away the tallest building in the world, towering 380 metres, including 102 storeys, above the storied streets of New York. It took another 40 years before another building would uh, breach the 100-storey mark, this time in Chicago with the Hancock Centre. Now, this new tower was revolutionary, using techniques that would allow engineers to build higher and higher, creating skyscrapers that really did scrape the sky and uh, would eventually dwarf the old empire state. Now, the key to this engineering breakthrough... In the 60s and 70s was one man, a Bengali migrant to America with a remarkable story. Sneha Mahita is a freelance writer covering, uh, well, design and culture based in Mumbai. And Signa Sur is the founder and CEO of the Juggernaut, and she's in New York. And together they co-authored a piece on Fazlur Rahman Khan, father of the modern skyscraper, for Juggernaut. And I welcome them both to the Little Wilders program. Snigtha, introduce us to Mr. Khan. I'd like to hear about his early early life and about his fascinating parents.
4: Fazlur Raman Khan was a very interesting person. He was born in pre-partition India, so when India was a united kind of subcontinent in Dhaka in 1929. It's what is the capital of present-day Bangladesh. And he grew up in a nearby village of that city. He was born into a family that was Bengali Muslim and loved education. His dad was a math teacher. His mom was descended from the landlord, landlord class. And so he was extremely privileged, but he had access to education and nearby colleges and great schools. And That's a little bit about who he was growing up and where he was.
1: So he's a gifted young student, and after school he gets a Fulbright to study in the U.S. That's in uh, 1952.
4: Yes. And so during this time, a lot has changed. India has now become an independent country. The British have left in 1947. And he had never really seen high-rise buildings before, and he ends up in America. Um, At university, he earned two degrees in structural engineering and applied math. And, you know, he was a very studious, smart person. And the science of buildings was very interesting to him because he felt that it brought together so many different disciplines. Um, And by the time, you know, he got there to the U.S., you have to remember that India and Pakistan were two separate countries and his home, Dhaka, was now in what is now Pakistan.
1: He once wrote, I put myself... In the place of a whole building, feeling every part, I visualize the stresses and the twisting a building undergoes. He is also quite poetic in his prose, isn't he?
4: Yes, he is.
1: Now, Sneha Khan quickly gets himself a job at a very prestigious Chicago architecture firm, S.O.M., Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. And this was a pretty exciting place to be, I guess.
5: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, SOM was an architecture firm that was at the forefront of the modernism movement in architecture in the United States at the time. And even to to this day, they're responsible for some of the most iconic uh, urban design projects around the world, for example. um, They've built the Sears Tower, which we'll talk about Um, The Burj Khalifa in Dubai and the One World Trade Center, which was rebuilt on the site of the Twin Towers. So they're really quite an innovative and progressive and modern firm. And in the late 1950s, uh, Fazlur Rahman Khan uh, went directly to SOM and requested an interview because he was so fascinated with the work that they did and the scale of the projects that they took on. And he took the job at even, you know, a much lower salary than he would have gotten at an architect, at an engineering firm. But he wanted to really get into, you know, working on these kinds of exciting big projects. So his first gig at SOM was building highways and railway bridges at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And he would continue to work at SOM his entire life. And it's where he met Bruce Graham, the the legendary architect with whom he would collaborate on some of the most iconic projects that the world has seen to this day.
1: Why did he go back to Pakistan in 57?
5: It was a stipulation of his scholarship that he had to return to Pakistan for a certain amount of time and work on projects there. And so he had a job with the Karachi Development Authority, which at the time was, you know, a highly authoritative and bureaucratic place. And even though he had a very high status position, he wasn't really able to work on the kinds of exciting large scale projects that he imagined that he could be doing. And so he, you know, after a certain amount of time, he wrote back to SOM in Chicago and asked for his job back and ended up moving back to Chicago in 1960.
1: Now, Chicago was the place to be, wasn't it, for progressive modernist architecture?
5: Chicago is known uh, as the home of the modern skyscraper. And there are a number of reasons for that. I think with any kind of design movement, you know, when you study it, you realize there's a lot of other cultural and socioeconomic factors that shape that movement. And in Chicago, it was, you know, around the late 19th century, there was a massive fire that gutted the city and architects, when they were trying to, they had to rebuild it, they wanted to make a place that was really modern, really democratic, you know, steel was easily accessible, commercial office spaces were growing in demand. And so they started building at the time what they thought were skyscrapers, which was buildings that were 10 stories high. Um, which is laughable today, of course, but at the time it was a big engineering feat. Uh, And after that, you know, over in the 20th century, a German architect named Ludwig Mies van der Rohe um, emigrated to the U.S. and sort of shaped Chicago architecture into this really
1: Well, he, of course, was famous for the Bauhaus School.
5: Absolutely. And he was, you know, really he's famous for coining the phrase less is more. And uh, he shaped Chicago architecture in that form in which, you know, verticality and this kind of linear abstraction was uh, kind of came to define the city. And firms like SOM, uh, where Fazlu Rahman Khan worked, were at the forefront of that movement um, of translating Van der Rohe's principles into these kinds of massive, broad expanses of glass and steel, these really menacing and impactful
1: structures. And, of course, there was a push at the times in American cities to build upwards, to use urban land more efficiently.
5: Yeah, as cities started to get a lot more crowded, more and more people started coming in, the downtown areas were running out of space and... For developers, you know, they realized that the only way that we can provide more floor space in this really cramped situation is to build upwards. And while construction methods were uneconomical earlier on, it was impossible to do that. But with the kinds of technological innovations that Fazlur Rahman Khan and his team brought about, it became increasingly possible to go upwards as opposed to outwards.
1: So enter young Mister Khan. What was new about his approach?
5: Uh, when you look at the Empire State Building, which for a long time was the tallest building in the world, um, the structure of the building is what is now considered over design, which was that architects and engineers were building a tall building for the first time, and they didn't—they tried to compensate for the fact that it would be exposed to wind and you know earthquakes and all those things by really building a massive number of columns and beams that were really heavy into the building and so the building is very it's very densely packed with structure and it's very heavy what fazlur rahman khan was able to do um through a couple of in- innovation that he came up with was move that dense structure from the inside of the building to the outside. And what that does is it simulates the feeling of a wall that prevents, you know, pressures from wind, which is a big problem when you build a really tall building that it's going to be swaying in the wind um, and from earthquakes and things like that. So, you know, he came up with a couple of different um, innovations that he's known for. Um, One of them is the truss tube system, which he which is like you can see really distinctive X-shaped braces on the outside of the building, which was the structure of the building on the outside, but it was also uh, used as an aesthetic expression. It was used as, you know, kind of this like visual representation of the building. And then he also created the bundled tube system, which was a number of tubes together that would build a thicker column, which he liked to call pencils bundled together with a rubber band.
1: I'm and delighted about that uh, bamboo inspiration. I remember first seeing how bamboo was used for scaffolding in Asian buildings and it was known as the the steel of Asia.
5: Yeah, bamboos are notoriously uh, really strong and tall and they're also hollow, which was a principle that Khan was able to translate onto really, really tall buildings to put the structure on the outside and make them really tall and strong.
1: What was the reaction to this new style of skyscraper?
5: Well, uh, a lot of people hated it initially um, because it was just so radical. But, you know, that was even the case with the Eiffel Tower when it was built initially is that There was this new aesthetic. It was really raw. You could see the entire structure of the building. There were no flourishes. There was no exterior decoration. And so people kind of hated it in the beginning. Um, But even at the time, even as early as when it was built, critics were able to see that these buildings were going to become symbolic of Chicago, and they quickly became the yardstick for other tall skyscrapers to be measured against.
1: So one of Khan's greatest buildings was the Sears Tower in Chicago. And that was, well, the tallest building in the world for quite some time, wasn't it?
5: It was, and it continues to break records. It's the third tallest building in in the United States to this day. And it's really quite a revolutionary building because uh, it uses the bundled tube system, which, I, which is like pencils rub, bundled together with a rubber band, which was a visual revolution because it meant that skyscrapers no longer had to be this rectangular box. It could be this, like, variation of various shapes and sizes, which was never seen before at the time. And it's also extremely light. It has a steel weight of just 29 pounds per square foot, while the Empire State Building is 50 pounds per square foot.
1: My guests are Sneak DeSour, founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, and Sneha Mehata, a freelancer with the magazine. Snigdusua, back to you. Khan was a very worldly man, wasn't he? He seemed to be interested in just about everything, almost a Renaissance man.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a joke that I'm... I'm Bengali. And it's a joke we like to say that Bengalis in South Asia are like the snobs of South Asia. They're like the Parisians of Europe. So they're very artsy-fartsy. They love reading. (laughs) They love writing. They love art. Um, And one of the people he really looked up to when it came to culture was this man named Rabindranath Tagore. He was the first South Asian to win a Nobel Prize for literature, of course. And this man not only wrote amazing literature, he also ended up writing the national anthems of two countries, at least, India and Bangladesh. (laughs) And so Rahman was an avid reader of Tagore, would sing his poetry. And one of the reasons we know so much about Fazlur Rahman Khan is that he left detailed diaries about everything he took copious notes about everything and he was the type of person who was so self-aware of who he was and his own imperfections um there's this like fun story that when he was a kid he knew he was you know a handful like he knew he had a big temper he knew people hated to like take care of him as a kid if his parents left him anywhere and he actually wrote in one of his diaries that You know, being an affable, easy to work with, easy to converse with person was actually not easy for him at all. It was something he had to really, really work towards. It was something that he had to painstakingly observe other people do. You know, um, Sneha talks about how he was so marvelous at engineering and, you know, all these wonderful insights. That stuff was easy for him. Learning how to be a really good person or learning how to control his temper or learning how to be, you know, affable, that was what was really difficult about him, you know, really hard for him to do. But that's why I think he was so insightful is, you know, whenever he would travel, he's this worldly man, he goes to travel for all of his projects, he would observe how people interacted with each other. And then he would write these notes down in his journals, not only about the art or the architecture he saw, but how people were interacting with each other, how people were using materials with each other. And, You know, that's actually one of the reasons one could argue he was so successful in what he did, because it's not enough to know what you're, you know, really excellent at, right? It's not enough to have innovative ideas. You have to communicate them and get buy-in and get other people to see your perspective. And even as a leader professor, his architecture students would be surprised because he would kind of give them marks and notes, not only on the content of what they were saying, but he would even say, hey, you spelled this wrong. You got grammar wrong here, (laughs) because all of those details mattered. It wasn't enough to be good at math. It wasn't enough to be good at just engineering. You had to be that whole package. And he really, really kind of, to your point, made sure that people aspired to be that Renaissance person.
1: I'm very impressed with the fact that in the 70s, when war breaks out in his homeland, he becomes involved in supporting refugees. Tell me about this.
4: Yes. So it's really important to remember in 1971, a lot of trauma had already re- happened by that time. And what Rahman was doing at the point was not exactly controversial, but very unusual in terms of supporting the refugees. I'll get there in a second. But you know, partition, as we talked about, was very traumatic. The British leave. They divide the country into two, India and Pakistan. India is supposed to be secular. Pakistan is along religious lines, along you know, for, for Muslims specifically. But it has this really weird feature. It's divided to the West, which is now present-day Pakistan, and to the east which is present day bangladesh they have miles of land between them and guess what those people are very different people in west pakistan want kind of governmental control they declare hey urdu is a national language now and the people in east pakistan who are bengali and speak a completely different language are like what just happened here meanwhile the people in east pakistan are winning national elections and there's a man named sheik mujibur rahman who is the father of present-day Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, and he wins an election. And West Pakistan is like, no, no, we're not going to give you this power, even though you won this election fair and square. And they implement something called Operation Searchlight. And this was so traumatic. Pakistani soldiers come in to East Pakistan, and they kill millions of Bengalis, and they rape many, many women, Um, and it's traumatic. And the very next day, Rahman wakes up, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, and he says, we have declared Bangladeshi independence. This is March 26, 1971. Many, many Bengali people leave. They go into India. Um, at this point, Pakistan is an ally of the U.S. So Fazlur Rahman Khan is trying to get international support for his fledgling country that has just declared independence. But in the world's eye, it's still part of, you know, Pakistan. And so he creates these two organizations. One of them is called the Bangladesh Emergency Welfare Appeal. That's to help the refugees who have lost everything. They've lost their homes. Many of them have lost their relatives and they have left, you know, and to, some of them walked by foot into India. My uncle was one of these people. My uncle's families was one of these people. And he also creates a Bangladesh Defense League because they have to go to D.C. and lobby politicians to explain to them, hey, you might, you know, count Pakistan as your ally, but you cannot be arming them in this fight because they're actually harming a lot of Bengalis. You know, Bangladesh as a nation doesn't even technically exist yet in the world of, you know, the U.S. And, and the United Nations. And so can you imagine trying to get support for something and a cause that's such a fledgling cause that many people don't even understand it yet? And I think that's again, speaks to Fazlur Rahman Khan's kind of ability to cross disciplines, to cross kind of interests and try to get people to understand something. That's new. That's just kind of not really understandable.
1: And then suddenly, tragically, in 1982, he dies of a heart attack and he's just, what, 52 years old?
5: Yeah, really young. And, you know, even though he died so young, he left behind an incredible legacy because most, if not all, tall modern skyscrapers today use the principles that he pioneered, which is, you know, pretty incredible. Um, so skylines have been shaped across the world by his impact. Um, but beyond that, you know, also as a human being, as a person, there's a lot of other qualitative things that he left behind.
4: I think the legacy he'd like love for us to remember is not just the physical stuff that he left behind. As has said, he changed the skylines. But perhaps, you know, the more qualitative stuff is that it's important to kind of cross ideologies for to marry the East and the West to create something far bigger sometimes by not working in a silo and not working as an individual. And I think that's something that, you know, Rahman Khan reminds us of every day.
1: Look, that's really fascinating. I wonder if, uh, if Sinda, you'd just tell me a bit about Juggernaut before we wind up.
4: Yeah. At The Juggernaut, we cover South Asian stories specifically, you know, for the diaspora, but specifically for global South Asians And we encourage people and invite them into our big tent to learn about so much of the history that often gets lost in Western media because, you know, these stories were so few and far between that many people were not even equipped to tell them. And people like Sneha, they bring their expertise. She is a, you know, as you can see, a student of design. She's a student of history. They bring their expertise and we kind of find some of these kernels of ideas and find these incredible writers to go pursue them and chase them and bring these stories to
1: life. Well, thank you for bringing us into your big tent, and that's why we brought you into our little wireless program. (laughs) I've been delighted to talk to you both. Sneha Mahita, freelance writer and designer, and uh, Snig Desua, founder and CEO of Yes, the Juggernaut. And you can read the piece about uh, Engineer Khan, the father of the modern skyscraper, on thejuggernaut.com Thanks very much the two of you. On our next, the fallout from the Liberal Party's opposition to The Voice Continues we will bring you up to date and we'll learn why slime, that gooey sticky substance that's inspired God knows how many horror movies, is actually an important part of life on earth. See you later.